This Woman Over 70 podcast is sponsored by Vesta, a woman-owned kitchen and bath design firm in Chicago. Award-winning founder Colette Rodon-Hornoff and her team offer a collaborative and detail-oriented approach that turns your vision into a space you will love. Through design, measurement, and construction, you can count on Vesta to bring your dreams to reality. Visit Vesta online at vestachicago.com or call 773-252-7300. Let Vesta infuse your home with warmth and welcome. Hi, I'm Gail. And hi, I'm Catherine. Welcome to Women Over 70, Aging Reimagined, our award-winning weekly podcast. We're excited to be in our fourth year. This has been a labor of love that now needs your support. So we may continue to inspire women to age with purpose, resilience, and self-care. Visit womenover70.com and join today. And we are just delighted to have in the studio today with us, Catherine Grody. Catherine Grody is 75. She lives in Upper West Side, Manhattan with her husband, Mandy Patinkin. And our thanks to Deborah Robin, Executive Director of Jane Doe Inc. for introducing Catherine to us. A true Renaissance woman, Catherine Grody is an actor, playwright, and activist. She wanted to act since childhood and is well-known in regional theater on and off Broadway and most recently for her one-woman show, The Unexpected Third, A Work in Progress. I always laugh when I read that name. (laughs) She is the recipient of numerous awards and always tries to see the humor in life. Catherine is on the boards of Dances for a a Variable 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 Population and Downtown Women for Change is a usual suspect with New York Theater Workshop and works with the International Rescue Committee and American Jewish World Service. We're thrilled to welcome you, Catherine, to Women Over 70, Aging Imagined. Yes, thank you for being here with us today. So you were born in Los Angeles. Yes. And you and you've said that was a cosmic error. A very big you, cosmic error, Gail. Yeah, almost you almost fifty years ago. So go ahead. Yeah. What do you mean by it? Well, I meant that I literally never felt that was my place. Um, you know, Los Angeles is a funny thing. It's a company town, and if you were a young person interested in the theater, looking like I looked at the time which was looking back quite fabulous, but not to their standards. And, you know, I uh, an agent saw me when I was quite young, like 18, doing something, wanted me to come to her office. And the first thing she did was take me to the Hollywood Hills for a makeover. <laughs> I, I looked, I mean, and this was before, you know, we were all destroying our faces, but this was just an applied mask where I looked nothing like me. It did, and I just looked at her afterwards and I said, I don't think this is going to work. <laughs> and when I when I landed in New York City and was taken by Martin Sheen, who I had been his nanny, his four kids' nanny, oh, really? <laughs> off and on for a while. And when I came to New York, he said, I want you to meet Joe Papp at the public theater. So he took me to the Horn and Hardart, his favorite place in New York. Uh, where you could get, you know, for a nickel pie. And then he took me to meet Joe Papp. And I felt that's what's been wrong with my life. I'm home. Just (laughs) felt totally home as soon as I got here. 
Wow. Yeah. So that's where you've stayed. <laughs> that's where I have stayed. Yeah. Yeah. So, so um, you said that you, I mean, you knew you wanted to act since you were a child. How did you, how, tell me, tell us more about that. You know, Gail, honestly, it's sort of, it's sad, really. If you grew up in the 50s and 60s, right, what could a, what could a little girl think of, even with a big imagination, but it wasn't big enough to think astronaut or diplomat, I thought, okay, I, I can be a nurse, I can be a teacher, or I can be an actress. Oh, well, that, that's, or a writer. You know, those were the things. And I thought, well, if I write, I have to be alone. I don't know what anybody thinks. Oh, well, acting's easier, which is hilarious. Beware of your 14-year-old choices, you know. But I didn't think diplomat. I didn't think politics. I didn't think reporter. I'm still blown away when I do watch the news, as rarely as possible, but all the females and all the women of color. You know, we still don't have a lot of women of age. You know, Judy Woodruff is retiring, right? She is. <laughs> and there was a, a very well-known um, Canadian um, newscaster who recently was fired because she wanted to stop coloring her hair. I read about so, that. So, you know, it's funny because in my show I mentioned I literally had a news article saved from 1994. And the headline was, Marketers are wondering if older women can finally be beautiful in this youth sodden culture. Can they be? And that was 1994, guys. And in my play, I say, no, that was friggin' premature because no. <laughs> I mean, look at Nancy Pelosi saving democracy in stilettos and a face that takes at least two hours to put on. God bless her. But that is what she had to deal with. Mm -hmm. No, no, no male in that body has to deal with that kind of grooming to be taken seriously. Mm -hmm. So it is still, you know, a battlefront. But that's how I got to acting. And I was very, my grandmother used to say I was a regular Maria Oskin spy, which was evidently some Russian, you know, <laughs> Russian actress in the early part of the, you know, 20th century. So who knows? <laughs> Well, well, that's what I did. Tell us about your most recent play. You just you just noted it. The uh, Unexpected Third, a work in progress. Yeah. <laughs> tell us. Yeah, it was pretty thrilling to tell you the truth. I've had this idea. I, I call these ideas sort of crockpot ideas. Mm -hmm. They're just crockpotting away. And I reassure myself and other friends, if it's not coming out, it's just stewing in there, do you know? Because um, I did, a, a, my first solo show was A Mom's Life, which was in answer to the question that I was asked when I became a mother of two, was I working or just staying home having fun? Ooh. That blew my mind that they could ask that. So I went to Joe Papp and his wife, Gail, who ran the play development department. I said, I have this idea about how to answer that question. <laughs> and Joe said, if you write it, I'll produce it. And I said, Joe, I can't write at home. And he gave me a Selectrix and a desk down the hall from his office at the public theater. Selectric typewriter. <laughs> really? Can you I imagine? And I got, the, I got the idea when my son was one. I started writing when he was 18 months old, and it was on its feet at the public when he was four. And then I toured it for 10 years. And it took people from the life, a domestic life of raising children from morning, noon, and night. Mm. And my second show, it was called Falling Apart Together, which was looking at 
you know, the middle of a marriage, the middle of raising children, anticipating the empty nest. Who is this mate of mine without our children? You know, sort of a coming apart of family and coming back together. And then I've been thinking about this unexpected third. What, what is this? How do you fight the assumptions and the cliches, both within yourself and, and in the society? That you're finished, the exciting part of your life is over, that you're all done, you know? Um, and it's challenging, but it's, I, I went to um, Berkeley Repertory Theater in Northern California has an amazing program mm -hmm. um, called The Ground Floor. And it's, it's literally, hi, I have this idea. And they say, come and do it. They fly you there. They give you a beautiful apartment. They actually give you 500 a week and uh -huh. dinner. <laughs> and it was interesting because my director, Timothy Neer, and I, who've worked together for, well, we've known each other for 50 some years and we've worked together for 30 on these shows. And she and I would walk the three miles every day from the studio apartments to the theater. Mm -hmm. And the 30 and 40 year olds all took the van. <laughs> I was like, um, Mm, I would start walking if I were you guys, but you know, there's some wisdom you can't pass on, but I worked on it. I went out there with a third draft. By the time I left two weeks later, it was a 19th draft. Mm. I shared it with the staff there and the other playwrights in the program mm -hmm. and was very encouraged. And then we were up in Rosendale, New York, where we had 12 days to work on it and presented it in a movie theater that they're trying to do live theater in. So you didn't have, you didn't have things like a dressing room or, you know, limited lights, but it was rather the, the response was very encouraging, not only from people our age, which I wasn't surprised by, but what really surprised me was the response both in Berkeley and in upstate New York from younger people. Mm. I had 30 year olds coming up to me, this one beautiful woman, Raksha, weeping saying, Catherine, my whole generation tells me it's over in five years for me. <laughs> if I haven't found the person or the profession or the place to live or my savings for Botox, just <laughs> call it a day. And she said, your play told me that was bullshit, if I can say that. So there, mm. there it is. And I was sort of, I was thrilled by the wide age range of people that responded because I think we have so few uh, versions of this in the culture mm -hmm. that don't look terrifying. We're mm -hmm. either selling depends or we're lying on a floor saying help, help, or we're in some heinous home or we're, uh, you know, objects of ridicule. I mean, mm -hmm. I said to a friend, have you ever heard, and I actually used this in the show one night, yeah, anybody ever heard the expression, a little old man crosses the street? <laughs> no, you know, it's the little old lady, you know. And I say I'm finally understanding that cliche of the crone, you know, get out of my way. It's just enough. And I think for, for people going through this aspect of life to be encouraged and, and to know that, hey, it's not a Hallmark card. There's stuff to deal with that is not particularly thrilling you know um we joke that we're always in the city for doctor's appointments you know <laughs> if we're lucky enough to have insurance <laughs> but but there are tremendous amount of surprises in store that you can open yourself up for and surprise yourself and the other people around you
Mm-hmm. What are some surprises that for you, your own surprises? Well, one major surprise, Catherine, was um, in 2014, uh, I had done an extraordinary play called The Model Apartment by Donald Margulies um, at the end of 13. And it was one of those things that when you're an actor, you think your life will always be like this, you know, mm-hmm. a phenomenal cast, a phenomenal play that does something, a, a perfect production, do you know? Mm-hmm. lines around the block and it was very rumored to go to Broadway and it didn't for stupid idiot reasons and I was profoundly disappointed Mm -hmm. and that was at a time too well it was not 13 10 years ago and all of a sudden uh roles for women I know Estelle Parsons said to me once if you want to, if you expect to work in your 50s and 60s, then you have to be prepared to play the mothers of men that you're 10 years younger than, mm. right? There were tons of roles. I had the disappointment of that play, which was everybody was talking about this move. And then my husband got a job in South Africa for six months. <laughs> and so And he wanted me, of course, to go with him because you can't exactly fly back and forth from there. And at first I was like, what am I going to do in South Africa, you know, while he's working 16 hours a day? And the surprise was, Catherine, because of the disappointment of that play not moving, I ended up going to Cape Town, South Africa, and I was asked to speak at a local theater. And actually the head of it, I said, what in the world will I speak about? And she said, you won't have a problem. (laughs) (laughs) And I spoke to a motley crew of students and afterwards, and I had said regarding the play I had just done, I said, I played a Holocaust survivor, but it was not a play about the Holocaust. It was a play about psychic trauma. Mm-hmm. And if that has happened to you, and if you haven't found a way to heal that or find some catharsis, then you end up inadvertently passing that pain on to future generations. Mm-hmm. And that as theater artists, that is something we get to do to help people look at what is hard to see. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Goosebumps. <laughs> and, at, thank you. and at the end, two young South African men came up to me. And one of them, Colisa, said, what you said spoke to us. My father was a very sad man because his land was taken 60 years ago and he will never get it back. But I thank you for reminding us as theater makers Mm. that we must address our histories so we can make different futures. (laughs) And And that was the beginning of my South African adventure, which has not ended. Mm-hmm. I went there with my husband for six months in 2014. I went back by myself in 15 and 16. The New York Theater Workshop and I brought Kalisa Capacante and Bulalani Mabachana, two young men in their 30s, to Dartmouth, New Hampshire, for their summer season where we worked on a play called An Unlikely Bunch of Characters. Mm-hmm. And It scared me to think that if that play had moved, I would have missed this much more profound experience. Mm. And so that idea of always saying yes to the unexpected, to what you haven't planned for, Mm -hmm. to let surprises still happen to you and not scare you and need to do what you've set and what's predictable and what's 
seems safe because, you know, this was an, uh, it was an experience I can't imagine and it keeps on giving. Sounds profound, really profound. And you, and you have so much to give to it. I had so much to give and I received an incredible amount and I still do from these two young men. So, so that's one of the examples, Catherine, you know, the other is living to see a grandchild, which my parents didn't get to do. Mm. And he is nine months old, though. I keep saying he's eight. I keep saying taking off a month. I don't know what that is. And that's a very profound experience. Oh yes. Separate from all the Mm-hmm. You know, the Hallmark cards of, isn't it wonderful? And it's so much easier than the parenting. But it's a huge experience mm-hmm. and not not always that easy because it's mortality, you know. All my friends, when I was a young feminist and I was railing at them for having kids in their 20s, you know, obnoxious about it. You don't have to do this. We don't have to define ourselves that way. We can have them whenever we want. Well, my friend Vivian, who had her first child at 20, now has, you know, a 60-year-old daughter and grandchildren in their 30s. I have a nine-month-old, you know, one nine-month-old. How old were you when you you had your child first? I was 35 and 39. And you know, you both the, ages. Pardon you, me. You were both thirty-five and thirty-nine. No, my husband's six years younger. <laughs> but you know, it's it's a funny thing because I really, really, until the pandemic and until I turned seventy-five, I really felt this aging stuff was a crock. I thought it was all attitude, how you cared for yourself, and genetics. Mm-hmm. luck of the draw. But I really did think it was, uh, if I exercise right, if I took my turmeric, if I, you know, mm-hmm. and the reality of the aging process uh, occurred when I had to pick my six pound, six month old grandson up from the floor. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I mean, that was real that for the first time in my life, I had to think about, hmm, which leg, which hip is less likely to collapse here? You know, I never thought about that before. So, Does your grandchild live near you? Um, well, they will. I just was in Los Angeles visiting them. They live between Los Angeles and Colorado right now. But they are moving next fall to where we live in upstate New York. That's wonderful. <laughs> yeah, they, they learn they need some help and... And I'm working out to be able to give it to them. That's great. Your your Instagram account is so funny. And you you do it it with Mandy, right? Well, I do it with Mandy. And I have honestly nothing to do with the initiation of that camp. I still don't even watch them. It's it's our younger son who who was um, traveling across the world when the pandemic happened. Mm. And, you know, there's this expression, there's nothing so bad that good can't come from it. (laughs) And it really applies. I know there are exceptions, but it really applied because when the pandemic hit and Gideon could not do what he was doing and he was terrified that we were going to die, because all you kept hearing was, you know, the older people, vulnerable, vulnerable. And I would always say, I'm I'm healthier than half the 40-year-olds I know. So what is that, you know? But he came home 
and uh, and in he was home in quarantining. And on April 16th of 20, he came home the end of March. He asked us how we had celebrated, you know, the anniversary of our first date. And I said, we had a big fight. I described the fight. I described the resolution. And then he asked if he could post it. And for one major reason, because we work with the International Rescue Committee, and that was our only social media was through them. And they, you know, our, our grandparents were all immigrants. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so that's very close to our heart. I don't know who was there for my grandma, Masha from Odessa when she got off the boat, if anybody. Right. And Gideon was upset because we only had a few thousand views, you know, which I thought was fine. And we didn't handle that. The IRC asked it to do things and they posted it. And Gideon thought if he made it more, had more personality, you'd get a few more eyes on the IRC and refugee problem. So he asked if he could post it. And literally, I'm not kidding you when I say, I thought he meant, okay, I'm going to print this thing out and like post it, like hammer it somewhere, like missing cats or something. And he posted it and it got 400 thousand views 400,000 wow and that began I think initially it was because people felt so isolated and so frightened so it was a little bit of comic relief and it was also company of people that they didn't mind thinking of as their parents mm-hmm. you know right. um and then Gideon and his creative partner Ewan said we're putting you to work for the election mm. And boy, did they. I mean, we had memorized scripts. We were really working August, Mm -hmm. September, October on the 2020 election Mm -hmm. for Biden and Ossoff. And then much to my horror in that collage Biden did for the um, inauguration, you know, for his celebration. Mm -hmm. Fortunately, just for a few seconds, you can see me slathering butter on matzah and (laughs) chomping, which was... From some, I don't even look at them, guys. I mean, Gideon, for the most part, asks if something's okay to post. If it's a conversation, I remember, yes. After a while, I started, you know, I started saying, okay, Gideon, you can't shoot me from down below up. You got to do it, <laughs> you know. But um, I trust him profoundly, and so does my husband. And I'm extremely proud of both my sons because we managed to raise humanist, feminist feeling um, sons that both participate in making the world better, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. And yeah. that is no easy trick in New York City, <laughs> you know? So the uh, um, the last play, is it the la- your last play, your one-woman show? Is that The Unexpected Third, a work in progress? Yeah, that was the work in progress. We just finished it, and now we are putting together like a website and some bits of the film of it and putting letters together and, you know, seeing who we can get to produce it. Yeah. So we've got, I've got a meeting tomorrow and I've got a list and, uh, and it's funny, a good friend of mine said something when I was in LA caring for some ill friends of many years and caring for a baby and driving from the East side of LA to the West side, which I don't know how what's comparable in Chicago guys, but it's like, 
I don't know, maybe it's Southside in Evanston. I mean, it's <laughs> right. And a friend of mine said, well, what's happening with the third with your play? I said, well, you know, we we've got to make decisions. We've got to write to people. She said, OK, I'm on to you. Every time with one of your shows, there is that tipping point where it starts to be really shared widely. You have a caretaking issue. Hmm. You end up getting derailed with your caretaking gene. And that was sort of a profound thing for me to think about, mm -hmm. whether it's by habit or whether it's mm, that was enough doing it in that little movie theater up there. That was OK. You know, mm -hmm. so I'm I'm sort of watchful that I don't let the ball slip. And my younger son is really on my case about proceeding with that. So that's what I'm doing. That's what I'm focusing on. And I hope by next year I'll be able to, you know, say this is where it's playing. Come see it. <laughs> I'd love to see it. <laughs> yes. Right. So so what else would you like to share with us? What else well, is going on in, in Catherine Grody's life? Well, you know, I find it really interesting when you talk about the social media, because I do read every Sherry Turkle book that is critical of it. And I do think that it has had a profound, horrific effect on the way we communicate and on critical thinking and on slow time. Mm -hmm. But the, you know, the, um, if you say irony or the hypocrisy or the other side of it is that it allowed me to be seen in mm -hmm. a way when I was feeling tremendously isolated in the pandemic. Mm -hmm. And I'm a very social person and I'm up having conversations with shag bark hickory trees upstate New York in this little place we'd had for a hundred years. And, mm -hmm. uh, I was feeling, is this how the last third of my life is going to end? Mm -hmm. And the very technology that I decry for its misinformation and its, its emphasis on short bursts of thought, like two seconds, three seconds, you know. Right. Uh, I think YouTube is thought of as amazing because it's got like a 30 second viewing thing for a view. Some of the others are literally one second, two seconds. I think that's insane and not healthy. But it also has given me a platform for what I care about and what I can talk about and for humor and for being seen in this idiosyncratic way that I want to be seen as, as opposed to the cliche of the white hair person, mm -hmm. you know, and making an assumption about that. Right, right. That we're not all alike, you know, <laughs> like no other demographic are all exactly. alike either. So keeping your hair white, since you brought it up, is a choice, right? It is a choice. And I will tell you that it was in 2008, I played Nell to a very great actor named Alvin Epstein's nag in Samuel Beckett's Endgame. And I had to rent a white wig. I didn't have white hair. My husband would follow me down the street whenever I was going to my little hair coloring mm -hmm. person. And he would say, you think it looks natural. You're not seeing it in the sun, you know? And he said, you would hate it. And I'd say, leave me alone. I'm not old enough to have white hair. <laughs> well, now I am. And what's really interesting to me, I mean, that transition is really hard. Right. Uh, but what is interesting is it's the only thing aesthetically that I truly prefer. <laughs> when I look at pictures of myself in my 50s and 60s and I think, oh, I was, well, 
the hair thing, he was right. It was not all that great. <laughs> and I, I enjoy this, though I've thought often of doing an experiment of putting a really believable brown wig on mm -hmm. and walking down the street <laughs> or going on a subway if I did that again or wherever. The difference between how you are treated as a white-haired person and as a brunette is staggering. Mm -hmm. And I, I went to, um, a couple of years ago, I went downtown to meet a friend, young friend for dinner and to see a show. I dressed very thoughtfully. You know, I had my silk pants, my Tommy washer and a Japanese quilted jacket and hair that was washed and curly. I thought I looked like a distinct human being. Mm -hmm. And I bounded up the five steps in front and I sat down. I was the first one there. And the young hostess came up and whispered in my ear and said, listen, if you need to use the restroom, I'll let you use the staff one on the first floor so you don't have to go all the way downstairs. Wow. And I was, I won't say what I said to her here, but it was like, mm -hmm. and I, I mean, I couldn't believe it. And I said to her, I whispered back and said, thank you. It may surprise you to know that I usually climb the 12 flights to my apartment every day in spite of this. So <laughs> I don't need your first floor, Lou. <laughs> and she said, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to offend you. And I said, I know you didn't, but you really did. Mm -hmm. see me don't make these assumptions if I had come up to your place on a walker or with a cane I'm sure I would have been very appreciative but I didn't mm -hmm. and all you saw was some vague older person and you did not see me mm -hmm. yeah be yeah. careful you might get an irritated person like me <laughs> yeah wow wow Catherine, did you have anything to add? I just would like you to say a little bit more about how you think about your own aging. And you talked about being open to surprise and, and not buying into the stereotypes and misperceptions and things. But how do you how do you think about your, your own aging? You know, I always think about Norman Lear when he was asked how old he felt at 98. I think he's 100 now. And he thought about it. And he said, you know, I feel as old as whoever I'm talking to, mm -hmm. which I loved. Mm -hmm. uh, I honestly, Catherine, it depends on the day. Mm -hmm. You know, when I was working and engaged for two weeks in Berkeley, and I was working 10 to 6 on the text, mm -hmm. Monday through Sunday for two weeks, with a dinner at six with everybody. And then I would go to my apartment and work probably till 11 or 12. I felt ageless. I felt vital. Mm -hmm. However, since I had been in an economy seat, which I hadn't experienced for a while. And when I got off the plane in Berkeley, I could hardly walk. Mm -hmm. I'd been squished like this. I sort of limped off thinking, oh, great. You know, I'm doing a play about how great the third is. And I can't <laughs> move. I, the two weeks there, I had to see an acupuncturist. Um, a physical therapist, mm -hmm. you know, uh, I think when I've rested and when I have myself and eaten right and done my aerobics, 
I really feel it's very manageable. And I'm, I err more on the side of how grateful I am to be here when so many friends are not. My parents died at 53 and 56. You know, I have lost so many friends at younger ages at this point. Um, so when I'm feeling vital, I feel it's not a problem. When I'm exhausted, when I haven't done self-care, you know, uh, when I'm, running around and not taking care of myself, it really makes a difference at this mm -hmm. point. Mm -hmm. And I feel both scared and angry. And it's funny. And at those times, I don't like the way I look either. At the times where I'm very active, I think oh, that's not bad. I like that. Mm -hmm. So I think, you know, and the capitalism, the, the world of business about the fear of aging mm -hmm. is extraordinary. Yeah. You don't wake up without some algorithm having told this machine that I should get, that this is the vegetable I should be terrified of. And if you've heard of this <laughs> berry, you know, take it every day. And uh, here's the new cream that's making, putting mm -hmm. plastic surgeons out of business. It's all about being younger. It's not about being healthier. Yes. Yeah. It's youth masquerading as wellness, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. and that is a theme I actually want to explore a little more in the play because it is very hard not to be vulnerable to that. Mm -hmm. I don't look at a lot of them and some friends don't open them at all, but since I once did, mm -hmm. yes. I'm afraid of a tomato, my favorite <laughs> thing in the summer. Does it make you have arthritis? Well, I don't have arthritis. Will it give me arthritis? Oh. The fear, fear is terrible mm -hmm. for your body and your mind. And and, you know, just the reality, um, Iris Gottlieb, a young woman, wrote a beautiful graphic novel I saw recently called Everything is Temporary. <laughs> and I think everything, so much of the world's conflicts and terrors and inability to be in community with each other and celebrate the difference has to do with that reality. Mm -hmm. We are all temporary. Every living thing is temporary. Mm -hmm. And it's a hard thing to live through and with and put it in its proper perspective, you know? Mm -hmm. yeah. My brother's a Jewish monk and, you know, he always says, awaken, awaken, life and death is a serious business. If you're always focusing on the past or the future, neither of those is real. One mm -hmm. is gone, one of this hasn't happened yet. And you miss this, yeah. this life. That's so right. as long as we are breathing in this, see where it takes us. That's a perfect message. <laughs> I'm I'm I hope note. I listened to it, Catherine. <laughs> well, it's recorded now. So. Yeah, that's great. <laughs> well, well, thank you so much, Catherine. Um, so I'll just say at the beginning of the podcast, we urged you to join Aging Reimagined Circle, our sustaining membership fund. Aging Reimagined Circle hosts our monthly interactive programs, and we invite you to engage in these probing discussions and lend your voice to these important conversations about issues that matter to women as we age. So visit us at womenover70.com to join. And thank you again. And thank, thank you. you. I will join. <laughs> thank you. Yes. Okay. Have a good, good holiday, guys. Thanks thank so you. much. You, you too. Thank Bye -bye. you. <laughs>